0: You are, you are now tuned in, in, to, in the to the 26er December 26er podcast, podcast where, we where we encourage you, you to, be to be extraordinary on an ordinary, on an ordinary day. day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delicia, and this episode features Phyla Antwine. Phyla is an author, speaker, and coach empowers women to practice self-care, heal from hurtful experiences of the past, and have loving, healthy relationships. So prior to sitting down with Filer for this interview, I was already excited. Excited for her to come on and break down some of the common issues that many women deal with, even us 26ers. I knew she would educate not only our female listeners, but also our male listeners who may be looking for some insight into what makes some women tick. What I did not expect was for Phyla to come on and be so open about her own experiences and some of the internal work that she had to do to break patterns of dysfunctional habits and behaviors. With that being said, this interview is a two-parter, y'all. This episode is part one where Phyla really recounts her personal story in great detail and she drops some jewels along the way. But before we jump into it, just a quick disclaimer. During our conversation, Viola and I talk about some sensitive topics, namely sexual abuse, which may be triggering for some of our listeners. Now that we got that out of the way, without further ado, please take a listen. Phyla, welcome to the December 26th podcast. Thank you for having me. I am super excited. Thank you for being here. I feel great energy from you mm. in my gut. I think this is going to be a good one. I agree. I, have I a knowing.
1: Agree. Good one. One of the special ones. Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so tell me, who is Phyla Antwine?
1: Phyla Antwine is an evolving woman. Um, I am a mom, a wife, a business owner, an entrepreneur, a daughter, a sister, a survivor. But within all of that, I think that at this point, point in my life there is such a powerful transformation and evolution occurring Uh, and that's how I see myself now as a woman becoming evolving transmuting into something so much more powerful than she ever thought she could be
0: awesome so I definitely want to talk about um, that transformation and what's really happening Mm -hmm. first I want to (coughs) back up to something that caught my attention that you you said that you're a survivor. Yes. And the reason why I want to start there is because I, I have a feeling that mm. that informs so much of what has happened since then. Um, so when you say that you're a survivor, take me back to when your story was something very different than what it is now.
1: So I grew up um, early on as a very privileged child. Mm-hmm. Uh, my family did financially well. My parents had the nicest cars, um, nice home I think my parents were like in their really early 20s when they bought their first home. Really, Yeah. My dad owned a business. My mom is a nurse in alternative medicine. Mm -hmm. So everything that's considered new age now, I was exposed to that in her job at such a young age. So she was also 17 when she had me. Wow. So both my parents were very young and they created this really like beautiful aesthetic of a life. Um, And so initially... I had a great relationship with mom and dad. It was very cultured. My dad had relationships with people who were like really power players in the the community. Um, And it was great. My mom comes from a family of 11. So it was all about family and fun and culture. And it was a beautiful beginning. But at some point, things did begin to change in a way that, um, like you said, has built the foundation for who I am now. If that makes sense, absolutely. Yeah. So,
0: how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 39. 39. Yes. Okay. So we're talking about um, born in late 70s. 79. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: 79. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Queens. Grew up in. Born Queens. and raised in Queens. Right. Yes. So Queens was serious. A back queen then. from oh, Queens. L. So. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: so you start in this what some people would say not ideal circumstances. Right. That you were born
1: to a teen mom. Yeah. Were your parents together when when she? Got pregnant. My parents were together since they were 12. Wow. So my biological father was the first man my mom was ever with. Wow. Okay. Yeah.
0: So they're together, you know, since age 12. Mm-hmm. Your mom gets pregnant at 17 um, with you. So you're born to these very young parents. But she was a nurse in an area that's popping now. Like exactly. Everybody knows alternative medicine. We all research right. that, uh, you know, holistic health, all these things, but built a career there. Your, your dad built this business. Um, that Those are not stories that we hear often, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. even with people who come on this show. So you had the strong foundation. They had the wherewithal to say, we're still going to build a life, even though we had what may not be um, perfect circumstances in how we start our family. So did they get married when when they were pregnant with you, when you, when at some point?
1: Yeah, they got okay. married. I, I want to say maybe like when I was maybe one or okay. two, something. So early on. So I think they got married when they were between, let's say, like 19 and 21. Okay. They were still very young adults and still kind of figuring it out. But they did know that they wanted to create this family unit together. OK, so you you're in this situation.
0: How long did you feel that privilege and sort of an idyllic situation before things changed?
1: I was a bougie baby. (laughs) (laughs) Jack and Jill baby. (laughs) Yes. And um, I was privileged with blindfolds Mm -hmm. probably until I was about... no, I would say until I was 11, until, until 11. the circumstance changed. Yes. Up until that point, things were roses and peaches in my eyes. So as far as you saw it, things were great. But right. It sounds
0: like there was something going on Girl, behind the scenes that yes. you didn't know about. Okay. Yes, ma'am. So 11, that mm-hmm. innocence is no longer because you've been now exposed to the real in some way, I, I presume.
1: Right. OK, so what happened? So before 11, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's important to recognize that even though I grew up living a good life, childhood, privileged life, I still grew up in the crack era 80s mm-hmm. in, Queens. in Queens, in Queens. Right. So my dad had a business. But on the other end of that, he was involved in what was happening at the time. Really? Yes. So yes. the
0: business was Was it a a complete front?
1: It wasn't a complete front. Or he just had
0: this going on, then something else going on? It
1: evolved. I believe when he was young, like he was able to, he was so charismatic, Mm -hmm. right? And so he was able to create relationships with some of the people in the community who were really powerful business owners, other things. But his relationships evolved into something based on what was happening in the Black community at that time. Okay. Got it. So at age 11, how...
0: What occurred so that you were now exposed to this is not all roses and fairy tales the
1: way I thought it was. So there was exposure before 11. Mm -hmm. But again, because... I lived in a bubble, so to speak, right? We had family members who were strung out. Um, I had cousins whose parents would be gone for like weeks at a time and they would have to stay with us. But because I was still a child and there was a certain level of selfishness that children have, I didn't totally recognize what was happening as it pertained to me in my life. Mm -hmm. So I saw the drugs. I um, even have memories of being in a room with my dad where there was paraphernalia Mm -hmm. and things on the table. I knew not to ever tell my mom that because she was extremely straight-laced. However, at 11, my entire concept of who I was, of who my parents were, of life as I knew it completely and totally changed. And that was the first time that I was ever sexually abused. Mm -hmm. And I was sexually abused in my own home by my biological father. Wow. Who up until that point had been the epitome of what I thought a man should be. Mm -hmm. Like I loved him, adored him. We had the Most amazing relationship. He would take me to see Broadway shows when I was eight and nine Mm -hmm. and 10. And so as you can imagine, it altered my brain chemistry. Sure. You know, and altered the way that I thought about everything. In one instance, and maybe the initial time may have lasted for five minutes, mm-hmm. but it has impacted me for the rest of my life. Of course. So in that moment, mm-hmm.
0: what were you feeling? Was it fear? Was it confusion, a combination of the two? Did you feel like I need to tell someone that this happened? Um, what was your immediate reaction after that first incident?
1: So there it was a combination of, of emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, I was asleep initially and he was waking me up mm-hmm. for school. So, you know, I'm a heavy sleeper. I I like to sleep. And so I was asleep and he came into the bedroom to wake me and it was normal at first. So there was some grogginess Mm -hmm. as I'm coming out of sleep. But I started to feel sensations I had never felt before. Mm -hmm. I'm 11 um, and I was the last of my friends to get my period. So Mm -hmm. I wasn't even going through puberty yet. And I think feeling those sensations is what triggered something like, hey, something is happening here. Mm -hmm. So it was a mix of confusion because I'm coming from sleep into reality. Uh, There was some fear. I literally felt my body lock Mm -hmm. and I was almost paralyzed. And that was probably what I felt in the moment. But it was the afterthought that completely like was devastating. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because you ask, you know, did you want to tell someone at that time? So like I said, my father was my best friend right. up until that point. So whatever had occurred hadn't happened by the hands of my best friend. Mm-hmm. So I questioned if it even happened. uh. And I played with that idea for months. And then within the the scope of a few months, it didn't happen again. So I rationalized that I somehow maybe dreamt it or made it up or, you know, misconstrued his actions or confused what happened. But I never felt the same. I did try to act like nothing had ever happened. And here's the, the really interesting but damaging thing he had not changed in his behavior towards me. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine a parent who you love, who you adore, who takes great care of you, right? In your eyes, becoming a monster for a moment Mm -hmm. and then going back to that idyllic parent that you remember. I'm 11. So there was such a state of confusion that it could have caused a very severe emotional breakdown, I think. But because it didn't happen again, at that point, and he seemed to be just as normal and jovial as he always was. I tried to just leave it there and, and move on. OK, so months pass. Things are back to normal. You sort
0: of told yourself, I imagined this, this mm-hmm. did not happen. This did not happen. Um, but then I anticipate there's another incident. Yes. Right? So something else occurs at this point. Um, you're still 11 or maybe 12 at this point. It's
1: probably still 11, mm-hmm. um, probably still 11 and yeah, I'm still 11 because I was in the sixth grade. OK, <clears throat> so it happened again. Now, I don't have exact memories of like all of the occurrences mm-hmm. because it kind of becomes hazy okay. when you're trying to block out. Right. Of course. Um. So what I do remember is that it did happen again. Same circumstances. So always when I was asleep mm-hmm. at that point. So I would wake up and I would kind of scream or yell and then he would say. Say things like, are you okay? You were having a nightmare. You were. So I'm like, I'm I'm bugging out. Like, I'm really losing it almost like, is this happening? Is it not? Maybe it's me in my sleep, because also when I was very young, I would go into. Now, I don't know about Mm y'all, but my grandmother is old. Black woman from the South. And they would say like, when you fall asleep and you're not able to wake up, the devil was in your dreams and someone's riding you. So that would happen to me all the time in my sleep. And my mom would always say, you know, you sleep too deeply. So because I was accustomed to that happening during sleep and now this, I'm like, well, maybe there's some connection here. And then he would always pretend that he was like coming to my rescue at some point. Um, At that same time, I was in a gifted and talented program at school. Mm -hmm. I did extremely well. And I, I love to read, love school, all that. The long and short is that I lost total interest mm-hmm. in everything academic, everything school related. I stopped doing homework. I stopped cleaning out my book bag. Like my teachers were so concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, And that was the point where I realized this is really happening because I wouldn't be responding or I should say I wouldn't be reacting this way if it wasn't real. So you had the mental fortitude even at that age mm-hmm. to realize that,
0: no, this is connected to what's, what's happening to me in my sleep or when I'm half awake. And I wasn't sure whether it was real or not. But now I know it's real because I I, I know that it's affecting me in my waking life. You were able to
1: connect those dots. I was able to connect those dots. And I don't know how mm-hmm. at that time. Um, Um, But my entire existence in this life is so much more about what is happening within me, Mm -hmm. um, what's happening without me and what is coming through me. So even at that age, I think I realized that there were forces helping me along mm-hmm. this journey. Um, but I did have the emotional and the intellectual intelligence at that time to recognize something wasn't right. Wow. Yeah. So
0: I want to unpack that a little bit. But before I do, I presume if you were having these issues, um, you know, your teachers were noticing it, that somebody made a call or yes, had a conversation with your parents. And how did your parents react in that instance?
1: So the teachers I had, like, were phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and they really cared about us. They reached out to, they had conversations with me. And then They had the wherewithal to say, is there anything happening? Mm -hmm. Is anything going on? And I said, no. And then I had a guidance counselor who was um, a black woman who recognized that something was happening here. And she called my parents in for, she called that morning for school. And my mom came in to look at my book bag and my book bag was full of like crumbled papers Mm -hmm. from the beginning of the semester. It was just a mess. And my mom is meticulous. So that initially shocked her and then she couldn't understand what was going on. So we went in to meet with the guidance counselor, both my mom, my dad, myself and the counselor had a conversation. Um, I was detached. Mm -hmm. You know, I was disengaged. They talked. I said, I just, you know, the work was too hard and things like that that were unbelievable. If you knew who I was as a student at that time. And then the meeting was over. My parents were leaving and the guidance counselor said to my mom, oh, Ms. McMillan, that's my maiden name. Can I just have a moment as my dad left to go and get the car? And she sat us both down and she said, you know, sometimes there are conversations that you should have with your daughter when no one else is around. And that's a good guidance counselor. She And when I say I don't remember her name, mm-hmm. but that moment. Uh, I don't know if I have the right word to even express how it made me feel, but I felt seen Mm -hmm. in a way that no one else was seeing me. And that was powerful for me because it indicated that I mattered Mm -hmm. and that, even though people who love you care, here's someone who doesn't have to care. And she's recognizing that something is not OK with you and she's caring enough to take an extra step. And that was really powerful for me.
0: Yeah, I'm like getting a little emotional because, you know, even now, all these years later, we hear these narratives like who's protecting mm-hmm. our girls, our black girls, especially in um, often being. Hypersexualized, you know, before they're of age and, you know, that you develop and all these things. And one of the things in the black, black community that has always bothered me is always putting the onus on a child, mm-hmm. you know, why are you walking around with those shorts on or, or whatever? I'm like, this is a child. And if, if her uncle or her dad can't handle... Her being in a pair of short. Mm-hmm. OK, yes, we teach modesty and all that stuff. But the bigger problem is why are you so concerned about this grown man, um, you know, being in the presence of your child at this age? And so to hear all these years earlier that a guidance counselor mm-hmm. saw an opportunity to have that conversation is powerful. Extremely, extremely powerful. Because often in those instances, especially because our parents work hard and all this other stuff, the first question is, you got me up at the school, you know, what what are you doing or not doing? Mm-hmm. And everything's about the, you know, to the child. You need to get your act together and, and to see that opening and to take it, um, you don't you don't hear that.
1: You often. don't. You don't. So it, how did your mom respond in that instance? I, I think that um It created a level of awareness for my mom that she didn't have before Mm -hmm. that either. Because, again, it's important to reiterate that she was with my father since they were 12. Mm -hmm. So who someone is when they're 12 versus who they are when they're 18 versus who they are when they're 27 is very different. And women relate to life through relationships. Mm -hmm. Right. And we often hold on to who someone was to us early on in the relationship rather than recognizing who they have become. That's a word. That is a word right there. (laughs) And so while I, while I I remember seeing the facial expression, my mom's facial expression change, I think it only went so far Mm -hmm. because she was holding on to the idea of who my father was as her 12-year-old boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And that made a a big difference in um, when the revelation would actually come. Mm -hmm.
0: So... In that moment, when when you're sitting there and you're hearing your guidance counselor say this, are you thinking like, oh, my God, oh, my God? Like,
1: no, or I, I was like, b- before that, you know, mm-hmm. I was detached. Yeah. I was disengaged, like I said, like nobody's going to get what's happening mm-hmm. because this doesn't happen to anybody. Mm-hmm. I also felt like, oh, my God, it's only you. It's only me. This doesn't happen to anyone. So when she said that. I immediately looked up like, yes, you you see me, you see me. And I looked at the guidance counselor and I looked at my mom and I remember my mom's face. And she recognized that that had resonated with me as well. Mm-hmm. So we did have a conversation later. Um, but here's the thing about when we have conversations with our children about loved ones potentially hurting them or harming them, mm-hmm. we have to totally and completely take our emotional attachment to the assumed or potential predator out of the conversation. For sure. So the conversation with me and my mom, it was. Like, like, you know, your father loves you, right? He would never, but you can talk to me and tell me anything. So it's almost like a dual conversation. Right. She was having a conversation with herself and having a conversation with me. And so when we're talking to children about their safety, whatever emotional attachment you have to the other person has to go out of the window. Right. Like I tell my my children and it's interesting because my family is like, oh, here she goes <laughs> all the time. <laughs> I don't have the conversation with them behind closed doors about how they should protect themselves from adults. Mm-hmm. I have the conversation in the open, in front of the room full adults and in front of my children. That's powerful. And it is powerful because it teaches my children, number one that mommy is going to be your advocate. But number two, you have a right to say, hey, I'm uncomfortable with this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there have been instances where a family friend or family member have maybe like picked my daughter up. Even my son's daughter's son put it on his lap. And I'm like, hey, that's not okay with us. We don't operate like that. And I'll say to my child, Jaden Milani, get off of Mr. Such-and-Such's lap. You know, that's not okay with mommy, right? And Mr. Such-and-Such, please don't pick my children up like that again. I don't condone that. I don't care that he may be embarrassed. And you shouldn't. Right. I wish more people did that. But that's part of the problem. Mm -hmm. So in my conversation with my mom, I think it was something that she had never heard of happening. And again, she comes from a family of 11 and there's never been any sexual abuse or anything Mm -hmm. in their family. Great. So it was like, huh? So in the conversation, it's like, you know, you come from loving parents. We are a good family. That would never happen. You know, that does happen to some people and it's not their fault, but that's never happened to you, right? So it's already
0: setting you up to feel like you have to give a specific answer to help her feel okay about this situation. Right,
1: right. And... This conversation is about me, but, you know, you have to include some of the sprinkles of the people around you. So it's important for me to also let you know that my father was um, a serial adulterer. Mm -hmm. And so part of me processing everything that's happening, there's this conversation of, He's done all of these things with all of these women. He's lied to my mom. He's not come home and she's still here. Mm -hmm. What if I tell her explicitly what's happening and she chooses to still be here? That's going to impact my relationship with her. And I loved my mom. Still do to this day. We have a very close relationship. So at 11, I was carrying all of that baggage. And in some ways, I felt like maybe I can handle this better than she can. So I'll just deal with it until
0: and you know this is I think an important point to focus on because I'm not saying it doesn't happen in other races and cultures but I think this is a pervasive issue in the black community I agree of a responsibility and an, and an onus that children feel to protect mm-hmm. a parent mm-hmm. or or a loved one and carrying all this baggage and trauma a word we use a lot on this show mm-hmm. um, and feeling like well I just want to protect my mom from any more hurt or my dad from from this yeah. or that. And I personally believe, and we're going to get into how all this affected you as an adult, but it affects how we approach relationships and adulthood and all this other stuff because we've essentially been a receptacle mm-hmm. and from the beginning put our own of well-being or been trained or conditioned to put our own well-being um, and stability on the back burner yes. for the sake of somebody else who is our elder and is responsible to be a protector for us. Yes. yes. Where do you think that comes from? You think it's in just inherent, embedded, embedded in our DNA or it's something else?
1: Um, I do think it's embedded in our DNA now, but it comes from our pathology, mm-hmm. Right. Our history starts before slavery, but most of our trauma begins there. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about our trauma and our dysfunction and our baggage, we have to make sure to have the conversation of what type of environment we were living in. And so all of that um, pain and struggle, especially when it comes to black women out here caping for everybody. Yes. Because black men dealt with the brunt of the physical abuse Mm -hmm. during that time. And so if you're in a relationship, you don't really want to stress your partner out anymore, right? To minimize it. So as a Black woman who saw how a Black man was being oppressed and how a Black man was being abused, you're going to try to handle as much as you can on your own to not be more of a burden to him. And I think that that is where it started. But we... Have taught our girls to continue that legacy without teaching our boys to be just as protective. Mm -hmm. So women have this like double burden. We have to take care of ourselves and we have to take care of everybody else because our men are already dealing with so much. But somewhere along the way, we stopped the taking care of ourselves part because it became so heavy taking care of everyone else. And anything that goes on for a generation or two becomes a part of who you are. Mm-hmm. And then that becomes your your legacy. Um, you know, in the black community, we talk about generational curses, but I don't even use that phrase. I don't believe in curses. Mm-hmm. What I believe it is, is a pattern of behavior, right? That's been learned. And so if we're able to learn negative patterns, then that means that we're also able to unlearn those negative patterns and replace them with something else. And I think these conversations are the start of that replacement of thought and of being happening.
0: Yeah, and it's funny you should mention the generational curse thing because if you're anybody who grew up in church, mm-hmm. you know, that's all you heard. It, you know, it's just a generational curse and it's just got to be broken. And, yeah. you know, we're going to pray it away. And I'm not trying to minimize faith or spirituality, but there is real work and unlearning that has to happen mm-hmm. in conjunction with that. And, and oftentimes, you know, people say, oh, it's a generational curse revisiting. Um, you know, we got to bind that thing up again. And it's like, no, actually, it never was resolved. Right. You know, like right. that, that was never <laughs> unpacked. Yeah. In a very real, you know, sustainable way. Um, but but going back to your story, so you felt this uh, obligation, you know, to protect your mother in a sense and carry it. So did you decide in that moment to, to withhold the
1: information? I did. OK. I decided to withhold it um, and I felt like I would be able to protect myself. Mm-hmm. Um Up until this point, it had pretty much just been like touching and surface type of abuse, not Mm -hmm. to minimize at all. But I said, okay, I'll be able to protect myself like I slept with more clothing on um, and I would kind of put little things around my bedroom so like you could hear something get knocked down and so things you're creating like that. Booby traps. I'm creating right. Mm-hmm. Not to the extent of like it would create an alarm because I don't want my mom to know this mm-hmm. is happening, but it will wake me up and I'll be able to know. I mean then at some point I realized that was just unrealistic and unsustainable. Um <clears throat> and I started to just shut down. I had always been so bubbly, um so self-assured mm-hmm. and this really hit my confidence in a way that maybe was a little bit necessary. And um, this might be a problematic statement for some people, but I told you earlier, I was a very bougie baby, Mm -hmm. right? And sometimes there are circumstances and situations and experiences that occur in our lives to teach us humility. Mm -hmm. And not everyone Is going to go through the same situation, but some of us have very specific circumstances happen so that we can learn compassion or humility. And then so that we can use that lesson as a way to help other people in our community.
0: Yeah, people are going to hear this. That's going to be a very polarizing statement. Absolutely. Some people will hear that and say, what? You know, did you just justify and say that sexual abuse is a way some people need to to learn a lesson? Mm-hmm. That's how some people are going to hear. It. Yeah, and then others are going to hear that every experience in your life, mm-hmm. no matter how traumatic, mm-hmm. can teach you something. Absolutely, um, and contribute to the fabric of, of who you are. But I, I can't wait to to hear the, yeah. the feedback. I'm and, excited <laughs> on on that <laughs> for feedback. sure. <laughs> yeah. So for you, you felt that it there was a lesson in humility there. When the, I know now, if you're talking about this on air. Mm-hmm. It came out at some point. So when did that that shift happen where this is now out in the open that this has been going on?
1: Okay, so um, it happened when I was 17. And 17. I, 17. So 17. 17. So six years.
0: Yes. And did the abuse progress? Because you said that it started as just touching.
1: It did. Mm-hmm. So between the abuse occurred between the years of like 11 and 13. Okay. And it progressed. So it went a teeny bit further, mm-hmm. a teeny bit further. And then I recognized where it was going. Mm-hmm. And I would physically fight my father. Wow. Like, Every day after school, we would fight. And again, he was in a certain lifestyle. So he was um, asleep when we were up in the morning getting mm-hmm. ready for work because he had just come home and then he was getting ready to go to work when I would be coming from school so there was only um that window of time and I was like if I can just make it through you know that hour when I get home I'll be okay and so we started to physically fight we so started every to, day you're having this every other day every day when he was home mm-hmm. because at this point he also um has started to live a very messy lifestyle okay um Of his own. So there were multiple women, multiple babies, all kinds of things. But if he was there, yeah, that was a really common occurrence. So now between 14 and 16, this is what's happening. My mom decided to separate from him because of all the infidelity and everything else. So I didn't have to tell. And he was removed from the home. It was great. Then when I was 17, graduating from college, I'm sorry, graduating from high school and it was time for college, I had gotten accepted into, you know, a couple schools. And my mom was like, I can't afford to send you to school. So I'm going to talk to your dad about helping financially. And I had a fit. I don't want one penny from him. If that's the case, I just won't go. Mm -hmm. I won't go. I work like, you know, I became manic. And that to my mom, she was like, what the hell is happening here? Um, and she had called him and asked me to speak to him. Just ask she asked him initially, right? And here is something that is, I think, indicative of predators and it puts you in the mind of a predator a little bit. My mom is talking to him and telling him the circumstances and how much money tuition will be and how much she'll need. And he could have said yes or no. He had the money and he said. I want her to ask me for it. Mm. And she said, well, I'm asking you for it. I'm right there while they're having the conversation. And he says, no. So she says to me, "Your, your dad wants you to ask for it. So I swallowed everything, got on the phone with him and I said, I need money to go to school. So will you help my mom pay for it? And he went into like some narcissistic rant about why he needed to be in the home and back with the family and how I had kind of like contributed because of the hatred that had grew that I had for him. And I took the phone and gave it back to my mom and was like, you know what, we just gonna have to figure out another way. And that is like Predator 101. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, And she didn't understand. So she said, I'll talk to you later, to him or whatever. They hung up and she's talking to me. Why are you so angry at your dad? Why are you so upset? You're even lashing out at me now. What is wrong? And we're going back and forth and I'm crying now. And she's like, why are you so upset? Why are you so angry, et cetera? And she says, you act like something happened to you. And I said, something did happen to me. So that's how it that's came That's how out. it happened. It was not planned. The words just came out of my mouth. And I still remember. Right. Um, I can still even feel some of the emotion. I said something did happen to me and I felt a literal weight come off of my shoulders. And at the same time that I was feeling this sense of freedom, my mother fell to the ground. She lost like the strength in her legs. And so for me now, I think it kind of shows that transfer of energy. Mm -hmm. You know, me finally saying like, I'm not carrying this anymore, but then she took it on. To an extent. And it it may have been too, so
0: visceral for her immediately
1: before even getting the
0: details because she had a knowing. Right. And now this is confirmed what I had sensed, but was unwilling to address.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, And there was a time when, there was a time when I did say, like, I hate him or he hurts me, something along those lines before this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember him injecting himself into the situation where it just was so exhausting dealing with him that it was just like, forget it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I don't have the energy. Forget it. And so there was a time where she did ask me and I said no. Wow. And I said no.
0: So where do you go from there? Like now you're mother knows and clearly there has been that transfer of weight Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you uh, onto her. But still, even with the lifting of the weight, you've got to deal with how that has affected you as a human being. And not only that, it has come out at a time when your life is about to transition and that you're leaving home to go to school. So what happened from that point?
1: Girl, I was ready to party. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Listen, I'm going away. You go ahead and deal with this. I've mm-hmm. been dealing with it for four, five, six, seven years now. So I was just excited to get out of the home and go away to school. Um, And she never asked him for anything again. But my mom, my... My uncle, my aunt's husband, my grandmother and my uncle, my mother's brother. They all paid for me to go to school. Wow. And I was just ready to go. I had never felt that sense of f- release mm-hmm. before. So it was it felt great. It was really amazing, really powerful. And I thought I was healed. You're like, right, I, I told out there, I'm it's done. out. Yeah, they'll deal with whatever. And I went to school um, and I had a great first year or two before I became a college dropout. Mm hmm you know, spent up all the family's money and didn't really do anything with it (laughs) because I had this, like, um, I was going to school pre-law and then I was like, I don't want to lie for a living. That mm-hmm. was this whole thing. But that's also in the midst of me coming to terms with what had happened to me, sure. being my father's daughter, et cetera. And while I was in my first year of college, I had to come back. I went to school in Virginia, Norfolk State, Ow, NSU, it, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I had to come back home a couple times because my dad refused to pay child support unless he had a DNA test. Okay, Right. <laughs> OK. Again, they were 12. My mama was never with anybody else. So it was just him still trying to control the narrative. Mm -hmm. And I would say to my friends, like, all right, I'm going to go take this DNA test with the dad that I look just like and all that. Um, And the judge actually made him pay for it. Oh, you want one, you pay for it because it was so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So, we were still going through this back and forth with him. There were a couple times where I spoke to other family members and he had like come and kicked out the windows at my mom's house, like in the basement. He was terrorizing her, like jumping out of bushes at her job. Um, this is like turned into a lifetime. Right. Yeah. Right. So, I wasn't really able to concentrate. Mm-hmm. On becoming who I was supposed to be at that time, it gave me a space to like decompress and get to know myself more. But it wasn't the experience that I thought it was going to be. And then again, I felt a sense of obligation to go back home and protect my mom. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. And she was like, what do you mean you're not going back to school? Like, I'm like, you know, it's too much money. And you and she's like, well, we'll get the money. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, no, I'll get a job. I'll work. I'll go to school here. And that's what um, ended up happening. But I don't even know if she knows that that was the reason why I decided to come back home. And this
0: speaks to the the second phase, I feel like, of issues within our communities of like first is the secrecy. Mm -hmm. And then it comes out and nobody stops to say, "Okay, how do we help? This child worked through this. Right. Right. We can't just send her out in the world. You know, she's told, but like we got to get her in some counseling or something. There's so often that it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen unless not always, but in a lot of instances, unless a social worker involved or it's become mandated. Right. In in some ways, so I think your story is just exemplary of the residual effects. It, it doesn't matter if, you know. You've now told and you're like, I feel great. I'm moving on with my life. Mm-hmm. Even if the reaction is is not indicative of a child or a young person needing or an adult needing to work through this now that it's out in the, the open, that is a crucial piece that has to happen. Absolutely. That has to happen. Absolutely. So now, you know, we look at you now, which we're going to get into the coaching and things that you're doing. But what happened? How do you go from college dropout drop to coming home to protect your mom because your dad? Who you would think? Mm. At this point, which is like life. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, OK, um, you know, this is like prime narcissist. But if you yes. were able to secretly do this with no repercussion, um, you would think that you would just go head on mm-hmm. somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Like, OK, you know, I kind of came out of that unscathed. But to be doing those things and antagonizing somebody is crazy. It is. Um, so you come home. And turn into protector again. And did you just work a regular job for a while and say, "All right, well, I'm just get along, you know, go along to get along."
1: Yeah, I said, "Well, I'll get a job, um, and you know, school in state is cheaper, mm-hmm. so I'll get a job and I'll go to a CUNY school." And then that'll be fine. And that's actually what I did. Um, I started working at Victoria's Secret on the like Upper East Side. Mm -hmm. Very like hoity-toity area. Uh, And I went to John Jay. Because even though I decided, okay, maybe I don't want to be an attorney. I decided I still wanted to do something within the legal system. Mm -hmm. And I was studying uh, forensic psychology. And I loved it. I did that. I worked. I went to school. And then at some point, a couple years later... I started having that question of like purpose Mm -hmm. come up. How am I going to be able to use this to be of service, Mm -hmm. even though I don't think I had the words to really articulate it. in that, in that means then, but I felt like I had more to do and more to give, Mm -hmm. but because I didn't have any examples and I didn't really know what I was feeling and how to get there. It was like a a period of, of breakdown, Mm -hmm. like what is happening? And parents and family members are like, but you're such a smart girl. You're such a great student. Like you've always wanted to be an attorney. Why don't you just go to law school? No, that's what you need to do. But no one was connecting the fact that I had like revealed this heavy thing that I was holding for so many years. Right. And even though I seemed to be fine, the residual effects were starting to to impact me and to show. At least when I was in the space with myself, mm-hmm. if no one else um saw it. So I worked, I went to school, and my mom and I started having conversations about what had occurred. And you know, she would ask questions based on what she could handle at the time. So we still had a very good relationship our relationship was growing um and at some point I had a conversation with my mom and I said to her you know I understand that this was very unfamiliar to you and so I don't hold you responsible or accountable and I think in in saying that even though I don't know if I believed it at the time Mm -hmm. if it was really true it helped me to get out of that space of like darkness that I was in um And then from there, I started trying to figure out who I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Like, what kind of woman did I want to be in the world? Um, And I decided I wanted to be in fashion and I wanted to be a stylist. Yes. So you went
0: from (laughs) forensic psychology. (laughs) Like that that totally is left field. That is not what I expected to hear. Yes.
1: You decided you want to be in fashion. I wanted to be in fashion. Yeah. Did you really like have a passion for this or it was just it sounded good? No, I always had a passion like for fashion, you Mm -hmm. know. But um, I really wanted to do it. I'm only Mm 5'3". And I'm like, you know, thicker than a snicker most times. (laughs) So I couldn't be a model or anything. And I couldn't sew. And I was like, I could do like styling Mm -hmm. and all that. And I got a job at Macy's on 34th Street, which I walked by on my way here. So this is like a real full full circle circle moment for me. Harold Square Macy's. Great Macy's. And I went for just like um, an associate job. And during the interview process... Whoever was interviewing me said, hmm, I think we have something that would be a better fit for you. And I was interviewed to be a personal shopper in their buy appointment department. Like it was such an amazing. Exp- it was exactly where I should have been for mm-hmm. what I wanted to do. And it was an amazing experience that taught me, oh, I don't want to do this. <laughs>
0: I mean, but you were not like you didn't have any experience or anything. And they were like, you should be a personal shopper. I knew how to pick out my own clothes. It's not like you were coming from, you know, FIT or whatever. Nowhere. Nowhere. Okay, so you became (laughs) a personal shopper. Yes. How long did that last before you were like, yeah, no, this is not it?
1: Um, so I was there for a couple years when I realized like, OK, I didn't want to be the, a stylist mm-hmm. because there were stylists for like top celebrities, top shows who would come in. And I'm like, oh, this is just drudgery. They're literally dragging garment bags yes. around, sweating. It's not a it's not a glamorous it's not thing. pretty at all. And a lot of cases they're using their own funds and their own credit mm-hmm. up front until they establish relationships with the with the clothing brands. And so I was like, yeah, this I w- don't want to do. So I was a personal shopper. Um, Like a runner also So people who knew about this at the time I didn't They have a department where you can go in And you don't want to carry bags or that. Mm -hmm. At the time, it was called a a pink book that you would have. I'm sure it's electronic now. But you would have a pink book and you would go to each of the departments and you'd write down the little number of the things that you wanted. And then one of the shoppers like me would go and gather all your goods. And the shipping department would pack everything up and ship it to you in Texas or in L.A. or in Atlanta or in Brooklyn, wherever you are. And that was what I did with my days. And I got to shop while I was working. Mm -hmm. I got... Um, to have like this freedom. No one was breathing down my back as long as the things were collected and the items and that. It was amazing. Um, And something really powerful, right? Every single thing we go through is teaching us something, showing us something. Right. Even when it's totally unrelated to what you think it is. I worked in this department that was ran by all women. So the president of the department, her name was Linda. She was a short, slim Jewish woman. Um, Sharon was the VP. She was another Jewish woman. Carol was the office manager. She was a black woman from Newark. Mm -hmm. Claudia ran the personal shopping department. She was a Latina woman from uh, who lived in Queens, but she was from Columbia, I believe. So I didn't even recognize at the time how much of a powerful space that was for a 19 year old black girl from Queens to be in. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now, like I said, it really is something I'm so extremely grateful for. Definitely told me I didn't want to do fashion, Mm -hmm. but it gave me this sense of feminine empowerment as far as my career was concerned that I had never been exposed to before. Wow. So this is at 19. This is like 99. You're getting that. Yeah. So
0: how long was it before you figured out that, you know what? Women,
1: that's who I want to serve. So... Mm, This was like 99, 2000 Because you know I thought the world Was going to end And I had a freak out moment The Y2K The Y2K All the uh, Nostradamus Documentaries Mm -hmm. and stuff I remember Going to um, My bosses at the time Linda and Sharon And saying you know I don't think I want to do this I want to be in business Um, I'm going to leave And I thought they were Going to be like Okay But they were Now again These two Jewish women Who had no attachment to me Other than me being The the girl who worked there They said well What kind of business Do you want to be in? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm going to go back to school for business. And Linda says, well, this is a business. What do you want to learn? And I was just like, uh, everything. And they started allowing me to take two hour classes on the like 20th floor with the corporate offices while I worked. So you're a runner. Yes. In
0: retail. Yes. And given access to the corporate floors, Yes. Which, you know, you usually don't see. In, Listen, in, in it's retail. like behind the red
1: doors. Yes, exactly.
0: Yes. And you, you can take these classes in whatever business subjects they right.
1: offer. Whatever business subjects they offered me. And are you still in school, too, at this point? No, I okay. wasn't in school so at this time. School,
0: but you're getting like these corporate
1: Ed, level right. professional development. I'm getting real yeah. life education, mm-hmm. real life um, corporate level classes and stuff and doing that. And so... At that time, I don't think I knew that I wanted to serve women. But women have always been a very powerful force in my life. Mm-hmm. My mom has seven sisters. They are extremely strong and resilient women. My mom and I are very close. Um, the guidance counselor who I had that experience with, I've had teachers. I had a teacher in fifth grade, Miss Reed, black woman from like North Carolina who stood on top of a table one day when I wasn't doing what I was supposed to, to talk to me and tell me to like get it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then being in this environment with these women who all poured into me. So when it came time for me to figure out doing something and who I wanted to do it for, it just made sense that I was going to do for others what had been done for me so many times. Wow. Yeah. So I do want to talk about that, like what your business became.
0: Yes. Um, But I want to take a step back because I have to get this question. Okay. Um, And there's so much to unpack here. This could be like. We have to do a part two. Yeah. There's going to have to be a part (laughs) two to this. Like, let's just establish that now. Um, But. When you've experienced that, like a man, you know, your father who doted on you mm-hmm. and, you know, gave you the world, essentially, and the shift in that relationship and then watching him evolve into in, into a monster, mm-hmm. essentially, how you're happily married, right? Now. I am. Yes. So how do you approach? Like in real life, not just on Instagram. Right? No, no, yeah. real, not the real happily social media, married. happily yes. married, for <laughs> real, for real. Um, how do you approach dating? And develop an ability to trust someone with your heart and mm-hmm. your life when you've had the experience that someone was treating you well at, at one point and then not. How, how do you how can you remain open to receive that level of love that is genuine this time after having that experience?
1: Well, at first I didn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I um, recreated the drama so I chose partners who embodied similar characteristics to my dad as far as like being in the street life, mm-hmm. but having a potential to do other things. And I went through like, oh, the heartbreak. Oh, he's with the girl down the block. Like I even dated a guy who I was absolutely in love with at the time who... um got shot five times, I think. And his mom called me to tell me he was shot five times. And I went to the hospital to see him. And on the way to the hospital, someone said to me, oh, hey, I think his baby's mother is having another baby by him. So this was the the space I put myself into recreating the drama. It took me meeting a man who would not allow me to recreate the drama in our relationship, and that's my husband now. So this is
0: interesting, mm-hmm. right? Especially you know we talk a lot on the show about dynamics between uh, men and women, especially men and women of color. Yes, um, and feeling black women feeling like the moment that you show a chink in your you know your armor and something's not quite right Mm -hmm. that somebody's running for the hills right she's crazy she emotional she brings too much drama I can't but in your situation he saw it and
1: identified it but just decided I'm staying work through it yeah we're not doing this right right um and so I should say that boyfriend with the the ridiculous situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I was heartbroken one night and I tell this story often and uh, I was in my bedroom and I was k- bawling my eyes out, crying, crying, crying. Why is this happening? Da-da-da-da. And it was like, it's happening because you're letting it happen. Mm-hmm. And I got on my knees and I prayed to God and I said, I get it. This is happening because I'm allowing it to happen. And I don't know exactly how to create something else. But what I do know is that I'm a good girl. I'm a faithful girlfriend. I'm a loving partner. I'm all these beautiful things. And so if I'm all these beautiful things, there has to be a partner for me. And so I am going to begin to choose differently for myself. And I may not have a boyfriend or husband for a while, but I am going to give myself the level of commitment that I want someone else to give me. And I made a promise to myself and made a promise to God and said, I'm not going to chase these no good Mm-hmm. anymore. I'm not dealing with it. I am going to choose well. And I am going to keep a commitment to myself to be alone until I find something better. And within seven days, I met my husband. Seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I met my husband. Really? Yes. But, but it's because I decided wholeheartedly, I'm not dealing with this anymore. Mm-hmm. So... It You know, I shifted myself into a whole new dimension. So that happened first. Then I met the man who was aligned with who I had become in that next level. If wow. that makes sense. But yeah, but it sounds like, you you know, you
0: made a decision, but there was still some work that oh, yes. happened. And he stuck with you. And I'm sure he came yeah. with his
1: stuff, too. And yeah. he worked it out together. We did. Time. We did. And he came from a two parent household. Mm-hmm. So he had a mom and a dad. And the first time I went to his house, I couldn't concentrate on anything other than the dynamic between his mom and dad. I was like, this shit is so normal. She's fixing dinner. He's sitting in the big chair in the corner. I felt like I was on a television show. His sister was so friendly. She wasn't like, she didn't come downstairs and give me attitude. His mom like received me and I was just like, his dad was talking to me, what movies have you seen? And had just come in from work. And I was like, wow.
0: Like, what is going what on? What is going
1: on? So I thought he was kind of corny. Of you know? course you yeah. did. <laughs> where's the excitement right. in that? I was like, oh, he's, he's probably a little corny. But he is um, extremely masculine in all the ways that masculinity is great. mm. Break that down a little bit more. Okay. So, you know, and on another note, right? I personally am an advocate for black male masculinity. I love it and I think it's beautiful. And so he was strong. You can, y'all can clap louder. Yes, we we yes, have an yes. audience today, and they're really <laughs> feeling that.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> it, it is.
1: He was confident. He was self-assured. He was ready to provide for me we weren't married so he wasn't like buying a house and mortgage at that time but he was prepared to to provide what mm-hmm. he needed to in those spaces um and he had a plan for his life yes everything wasn't figured out but he knew he had a plan and he said to me during one of our like first intimate conversations he said you know I don't know if I'm ready for you but I know that I prayed for you and I was like oh <laughs> Wasn't looking too corny then, right? right? Like, oh, okay, all right. And um, it was such a genuine statement and I respected that. And I always felt protected when I was with him. Mm -hmm. Um, And he never raised his voice. Even when I was having an attitude and having a fit, he didn't raise his voice. And on one of our first meetings, the first time he ever came to my house... I was like, I, I'm going to go see him, but I don't really like, you know, light-skinned guys. <laughs> and, you know, when I met him, he had on like sweatpants. And he t- we were getting on the bus together and he's like, he had just been in an accident with his car. So I was like, that's probably a lie, <laughs> but I'm going to see. <laughs> and he came to the house with his new car. Mm-hmm. And I was like, OK, that wasn't a lie. That's OK. And he was. And I was like, oh, okay. We chatted. The conversation was great. We got in the car. He'll tell you now that I sat in the car leaning against the door the entire time with my arms folded. He picked up a friend uh, who was really cool conversation. And the friend said, oh, let's go to McDonald's. Like I'm dating a girl there. We'll get free nuggets. (laughs) And so... so So he drove his friend and everything and he never asked me if i wanted anything and i was just like oh this is a done deal he didn't yeah you're like yeah deal breaker right i don't want mcdonald's i don't eat mcdonald's but he didn't even ask Mm -hmm. and then the friend was like hey do you want something and i was like no but thanks for asking and that was that and so we got back to my house we said like thanks and we left. So fast forward to conversations with my husband. And he says, I had already decided I wasn't calling you again. Really? Yes. And I'm like, who wasn't calling me again? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, um, I drove from wherever to come meet you. I was humble. I was open. You had your arms folded the entire time. You had an attitude the entire time. And I just didn't want to be around you again. mm he said, and when we were in the car, I intentionally didn't ask you if you wanted anything to eat because I wanted you to recognize that something was going wrong here.
0: Oh, so that was his way to send you the signal, like yeah, yeah no, I'm not for this, right? But I missed
1: it. Of and course, you did. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I got home, and I was like, yeah, I'm not dealing with him either. But I think I I didn't consciously pick up on it, but subconsciously I recognized that something about his behavior was different. Mm-hmm. He wasn't with the shenanigans and the drama. He didn't give in to the like the spoiled girl attitude um and he stood his ground the entire time and that was very attractive to me. I had never seen masculinity done that way before. (laughs) So
0: if if he had decided that he wasn't calling you Oh I wasn't gonna call him. And and you were like, eh, (laughs) you know, I'm not feeling this. He didn't ask me how, Mm. how, you know, what I wanted to eat,
1: who made the next move? He called. Okay. He called. I was like, I'm not going to but you know we'll see in a couple of days but he did call and when he called we had the conversation about my behavior okay so he didn't call and skip over it he called and like shared with me what his experience of the night was and mm-hmm. i thought that was so mature um and we so, went from there
0: that is amazing because it's one thing to have that conversation you've been dating mm-hmm. for a period of time, but you know, this is new right. and fresh. And for him to say, you know what? No, I'm going to call and tell her what I'm feeling right. about what happened. That That's a level of maturity and an approach you don't see often, especially before people are emotionally invested in right. something. And we
1: were young, we were mm-hmm. in our twenties, mm-hmm. early twenties. So, so yeah, that was something that really stood out to me. Um, and I think it was because we had had phone conversations for months before we like actually went on a date. So I met him seven days after making my declaration, et cetera. But we didn't like physically get together for a date until months later because he kept saying to me like, Oh, when are you going to let me come chill or something? And I was like, Oh, I don't do chill. Mm-hmm. So when you're ready for us to go out, then you know, you'll do that. But I think in hindsight, he was trying to feel out the situation. So it took a few months before we actually dated. So we had developed a certain level of respect for one another. Mm-hmm. And, us being together physically and visually in that time was such a contrast to who we had become to each other on the phone and that kind of thing.
0: There's so many lessons here. I'm like, (laughs) there's a lot of things that I want (laughs) to unpack. Um, And I can't believe we've been talking this long already. But let me just point this out, you know, from what you said. A, you held your ground. Yes. Because there are a lot of people who would have felt like, you know, all right, I I prayed this prayer and I met this person like, hmm, this is interesting. And they would have started to started to make concessions Mm -hmm, because they mm -hmm. feel like the right person has shown up. So now I can relax my standards. But you had the wherewithal to say, no, no, you know, there's something here and we can continue to talk and interact, but you're not coming over here to chill. Right. So it's maintaining a standard and allowing someone the time and space to rise to the occasion. Absolutely. So that is powerful, I think, especially for people in their 20s. Um, and also what's powerful is you gave him the time and space to rise to the occasion. You're living your life and all of that, but you let him do it. Because there are a lot of people mm-hmm. who would have said, the minute he would have said, you know, let me come over and chill that would have been the end of it. Yeah. Like, nope, yeah. I'm, I'm done with this guy. He's, he's not approaching this in the right way. And everybody has to figure out what that, how much runway they want to give mm-hmm. in that sense. I'm not saying there's a, everyone should wait months, you know, what have you. But I think what I find fascinating about your the little bit that we've discussed about your your relationship and what I think is missing for a lot of us um, out here is grace and mercy mm-hmm. and patience yes you know for if, if you see the makings of a good person there allowing the layers to be peeled back to figure out whether you can make it work with them as yeah. opposed to just writing them off the minute everything is not exactly you
1: you want to hear preaching your yeah. story is a, a real life parable <laughs> That had been my pattern, though. Mm -hmm. The like, no nonsense, no forgiveness, because I had already been traumatized. Right. And I was like, that's not working for me. Mm -hmm. So I recognized I needed to do things differently. Wow. Mm
0: -hmm. So listen, we already said we're coming back for part two. Yes. There are a couple of things I want to cover um, in this episode, because I feel like women are going to hear this. There are going to be a lot of questions and people are going to want to... Have a deeper look into your brain Yes, yes, your yes, Experience But there are two <clears throat> things That I, I want to make sure We cover in this episode mm-hmm. The first being um, Of course Now you've talked about like, So many incredible experiences that I'm going to ask the question Because we have to On yes. every episode But tell me about a time When you had to be Extraordinary On an ordinary
1: day Hmm So When I was pregnant With my second child Milani I got a call from a family member Who said that my father um, Had been diagnosed with cancer mm-hmm. And They didn't know exactly what kind of cancer, but it was abdomen and it wasn't looking good. They didn't know how long he had to live. And I hung up the phone and broke down hysterically. So all of these emotions I thought were gone, resurfaced, bubbled Mm -hmm. up, came up, etc. And in that moment, I recognized that I was um, hiding, burying all of that negative emotion in the same space that my daughter was now growing in. Wow. And so I picked up the phone and I called my father. I had been estranged from him for like almost 20 years. Um, I called him and he was always a jokester. And so I said, hey, you know, I hear they um, trying to put a tag on your toe. What's going on over there? And he laughed and I laughed and we had a conversation.
0: So you were able to have a civil conversation with someone who never acknowledged their behavior towards you.
1: At that moment, yeah, I I said, maybe he doesn't have the capability. Mm -hmm. So I am going to be a stand for both of us in this moment and for my daughter who's not here yet. And I'm going to start the journey to purging this and to uh, breaking this pathology so that it can impact the generations before us and it can go and impact the generations after us. That's amazing. Yeah, I think that's pretty extraordinary. Yeah,
0: that is is very extraordinary. Um, So now, you know, all these years later, I do want to to focus and highlight here. We want to we want to unpack that in another episode for sure. Yeah, the work that you do. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that people, our listeners, know that you are a coach. Um, Right. So tell me a little bit more about your business and the and the work that you do with your clients.
1: So I work with professional women, Mm -hmm. um, primarily professional women of color, and we do life and relationship coaching. So, my coaching is focused on creating a life of healthy relationships because I absolutely truly believe that the quality of your relationships eventually becomes the quality of your life. Mm -hmm. And women relate to life through their relationships. Oh, that is good. Right? (laughs) So if we learn that we are in relation to everything in our lives Mm -hmm. and we put some core principles in place to govern how we operate in relationship to the people, to the places, to the things, to the money, to the job, our lives are going to be impacted by that in such a way that they'll become these beautiful creations for us. Um. I'm, 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 somebody, take up an offering. <laughs>
0: Let me get a cut, Right, <laughs> we need we need something. Yeah, um, <laughs> pass the collection plate. Our Demarcus is is here and he's he's sat up. Okay, we have been recording all day. We'll give you guys some of the real. We've been recording back to back interviews and the energy in the room has shifted with oh, Pilar's so presence, and I, I can see Demarcus gets that twinkle in his eye when uh, <laughs> when we know it's a good one, and I can see that. Um, good, I'm because happy, it's so happy to needed. hear that. It is so needed. I know personally, so many. Black women who are, when you look at the resume, Mm -hmm. they're achieving
1: Mm -hmm. and, you know,
0: you think that they're thriving, but underneath it, there's so much pain. Yes pain that's starting to harden into bitterness and anger because that stuff hasn't been yep. dealt with and the, the interconnectedness of it all hasn't been uncovered mm-hmm. and really addressed and I think the work that you're doing is so necessary and so powerful um that I I don't want to I don't want to graze over it and that's Please why, don't let's not. That's <laughs> why I said, "You know what? Let's stop here." I yes. want people to know what you do because there are some people who are going to hear this and say, "I need to talk to her now." Absolutely. Um so that's why I wanted to touch on it. But what I want to do is come back and get into how you built this Mm -hmm. this coaching business, more of the work that you do, some of your areas of expertise and some of those tools that I feel like our our listeners, our female listeners need to start to move past the pain Um, and also get themselves out of unhealthy connections and relationships that they're holding on to for fear of it not being able, not being able to replace them with something better. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I think that, that is an issue too and then also I want to because better is out there better is out there and also when better comes being able to receive it Mm -hmm. and not projecting um, this air of anger or you know the defensive I'm just waiting for you to to hurt me so I can bite your head off or I'm waiting for you to confirm what I already know that you're just like all the rest Right. so there's a lot there that Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that we have another hour definitely um, to unpack but in the interim where can people find you online?
1: so across all social platforms you can find me um with at she is fila so on instagram on twitter on facebook she is fila s-h-e-i-s-f-i-l-a not fila but fila right it might be spelled the same (laughs) but it is not fila right and it was my grandmother's name
0: first See, before look, the that's, that's family history. Mm-hmm. Way before, you know, Fila came hot, came, that's right. came hot in these streets. Um, <laughs> yes. That is awesome. Yeah. So listen, I am so excited to continue this conversation. So am I. In the interim, I want to say thank you for being willing to be very open about your story. You know, these things, I don't care how far removed from it you are. And you you alluded to it in this conversation. Just talking about it can call up the memories because our we remember our bodies, yes. remember our, emotions, our cells, yeah, remember our cells, remember. And when those memories are called, you know, called up, it can cause a reaction. So I just want to thank you and, and offer gratitude for being willing um, to share your a piece of your story because we all know, you know, yeah. there's a lot there. You can't condense it and consolidate it into two an hour. You're so welcome, um, and I'm excited. I'm excited to see where your message goes. I'm excited to for us to continue talking, but also I know, mm-hmm. you know. I, I know I'm sitting in front of someone that, you know, I'm gonna be able to say, like, Oh, I knew her back when Likewise. You, you know, she was uh, like you know, twenty five thousand followers on Instagram and, and look at where she is now, yeah. what she has built. Um oh I feel like own is gonna be all over you at some I'll, point. But let's
1: <laughs> let's call it out. Yes. Come on, Oprah. But anyway,
0: um, for now, to those who are listening, you have content out there. I do. Um, so please look if you are, if this message has resonated with you, if you are dealing with some things that you've never taken the time to really explore or unpack, please check Phyla out online. Check out her content. Find her on social media.
1: Yes. yes follow yes.
0: her this is critical to your emotional and mental well-being, especially if you are holding on to pain or experiences that you've never spoken to anything about. So please do that. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delicia. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Tovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December26er. That's December26er.